It's Wednesday, December 14th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Mark Reith, and joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Mr. Jason Moser. Jason, how you doing, bud? Doing great. How about you? I am doing well. Fantabulous. We've got the holidays approaching. I'm getting excited about it. Uh, you got any big plans for the holidays? You know, I'm excited about just the weight being lifted from the shoulders. Sure. You know, sure. it's a lot of planning. You've got these surprises. Mm-hmm. You can't wait for the kids to see them. Mm-hmm. We've got a busy time anyway. I think we talked about this before. Uh, happy birthday to you. I know well, you just had well, a birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but we have yeah a couple of birthdays, a wedding anniversary, Christmas, all within like a 10 day stretch. So Jeez, I'm excited please. just to have the stress and the weight lifted from the shoulders. Tis the season for. Lots of stress. Yeah. Uh, it's also the season for retail. Uh, the holiday season is an all-important time for retailers across the board. So far, it's looked pretty good. Black Friday, Cyber Monday, big numbers coming in there, lots of sales. But it's the prices on those sales that's giving us some consternation here at the Motley Fool. Uh, you see, discounting has been has long been a problem in the retail industry where uh, these retailers, even more so the consumers, have come to expect that retailers across the board are going to offer steep discounts even at the best of times, let alone during the holiday season, again, Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales. Uh, and that's been biting a lot of these retailers very hard. We've seen you know, those high-end retailers like Coach and Michael Kors that went a little too far with the steepness of their discounts, and they are paying a heavy price uh, these days. We've got some numbers uh, from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, apparently, the number of U.S. receipts that included promotions jumped 79% in November from the same period a year earlier. So, again, even though those sales are up, the prices are lower than ever before. And, Jason, What's your take on that? If we're investing in the retail sector, you can't be pleased about that. No, I think if you want to talk about a stressful time, I have to believe most retail CEOs get extremely stressed at this time of year. We've talked a lot about sort of the Black Friday leading into Cyber Monday over the past few years and how more and more it's becoming less about those two days and just more about really the two months, mm-hmm. right? It's November and December. Uh, consumers are certainly conditioned to expect deals now more than ever. And I think that once the toothpaste is out of the tube there, there ain't no going back, as they say. <laughs> I think this is going to be the way consumers are going to expect to shop from here on out. And that's fine. Uh, Especially if you're a consumer, sure, but I think hey. from an investing perspective, it, you know, it could it could be a it could be a problem. I think the way you see this play out on the investing angle with a lot of retailers is you're going to see usually one or a combination of a couple of things, and you'll either see over time challenges to top line growth, challenges to growing that revenue, sure, um, and or gross margin pressure because ultimately gross margin is what helps sort of show the relationship between what retailers are paying. For their inventory versus what customers are paying to buy that stuff from the retailer, mm-hmm. and so most retailers these days don't necessarily have a whole heck of a lot of pricing power. And ever since really Amazon uh, came on the scene, Walmart, for example, has always been about low prices, mm-hmm. and it's done a wonderful job over the past thirty years plus in really sort of uh, bringing low prices to the consumer. Amazon has done very much the same thing, and so you see retail from that. Perspective. I mean, they're always going to be focused on getting you deals anyway. But when you're talking about retailers that maybe focus on a bit more of a niche offering, and you mentioned Coors and Coach, um, certainly any of these retailers, I think that the clothing retailers can fall into this category as well. And Urban Outfitters has witnessed a lot of trouble uh, this year as well. That's where these guys are just going to really, I think, run into a buzzsaw because. Mm. 
they aren't differentiated enough. They don't really have any brand power, so to speak. And so ultimately, what they do is they get stuck in sort of this this just Benji vortex that just sucks your pricing down to basically nothing, and it's inescapable. Um, interesting retailers that are a bit immune. Things like Under Armour and Nike, because they do focus on sort of a niche offering in the sports world. But man, these companies have done a bang up job of really just growing their brand in such a way that the brand elicits some pricing power because it is a brand that that consumers trust. Sure. Uh, they are doing a wonderful job of innovating and offering new new lines. And so, it's you know, inventory is obviously very big space. And just because this heavy discounting is going on, it doesn't mean stay away from all retailers, but you need to you need to really discriminate when it comes to investing in retailers. And I did think it was interesting in this here, this uh, uh, Simeon Siegel, I think is his name, who tracks uh, retail and, and these discounters, and noted that only two of these retailers were less promotional this year versus last year. There was Ulta Salon mm-hmm. and Gap's brand Athleta. Mm-hmm. Now, Athleta is just part of Gap, so Gap is really the company, and their Gap is having some problems because you know, it's it's Gap, it's Banana Republic, it's Old Navy, it's Athleta. I think so, of sales when I think of those sure, companies. Exactly, yeah. and that's just, that's just it. I mean, it's kind of like Bed Bath Beyond. You just you're just waiting for the coupon in the mail. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's nice that at least they have that diverse brand uh, offering of brands underneath their umbrella. But Ulta, I think, is one. You know, we've got that on the watch list in MDP. It's been a phenomenal story. And you know, Mark, I probably know too much about the makeup industry at this point, given that I'm a guy. But mm. the fact of the matter is, it is a phenomenal industry, and there is some pricing power there. And Ulta has done a wonderful job of growing out that bricks and mortar presence in a market where bricks and mortar presence still is is somewhat valuable. Um, and so, again, we've got Ulta on the watch list and MDP. Really, the one thing that's holding us back right now is the price. Uh, the stock has done terrific, and, and there's a good reason for that. It's brought some really great results. Um, but yeah, I think you know you flipped out the up the opposite side of the coin there. Something like Tiffany, which is never going to resort to these promotional sales right. because their brand is everything. They can't do that, or else they would really destroy. They turn into a coach, a major factor of their competitive advantage. Exactly. Yeah. Now you mentioned earlier, you know, Walmart and the vortex of you know having to discount, and Walmart is probably more guilty of that than anyone else. Walmart starts its Cyber Monday. They actually call it Cyber Week now. They yep. start it back on Friday. Uh, it goes through the weekend and into Monday. And as you said, it's really not just that week anymore. It's November and December. Uh, Walmart leading the charge into that vortex of of low pricing. Target is doing the same thing. They've extended uh, their holiday hours uh, dramatically over the last few years. Uh, so I guess, and you've mentioned the outliers. You know, some some companies out there that you might want to look at that can avoid that vortex: the Under Armors, the Nikes, and the Ultas out there. But I guess my question is, how do can we reverse this trend? If you're a retailer, you can't. It, or it could be very difficult for you to be the one retailer out there that's not offering the discounts. It needs to be an industry-wide reversal on this trend, and that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Does that reversal ever happen, or is this just the new norm for retailers? Is it just always going to be sales, sales, sales until it's not just Cyber Week, it's Cyber Month, and then Cyber Year? Well, I think marketing is a funny thing. I think it's hard to go back from once you came on something like this, I think that um, you're seeing some companies that are, are being a little bit clever in they're offering discounting during this holiday days, but the discounting uh, the discounting is based on sort of different pricing, so to speak. So you may have seen like an item 
on sale with retailer X, Y, and Z in mm-hmm. August. Uh, but then come Cyber Monday or Black Friday or whatever, they've they've changed their pricing a little bit to where the sale price that you're getting in, during the holiday period isn't necessarily. <laughs> The cheapest price you probably okay, could have yeah. got it cheaper earlier in the year when mm-hmm. it was on a sort of sort of pegged to a different price. So, so marketing retailers are very clever when it comes to marketing and stuff like that. But I think generally speaking, consumers are conditioned to find low prices, and I don't think that's going to change. So, I think really the one thing that retailers can do if they don't really possess sort of that brand sway, or at least if they want to add to sort of that that brand advantage, is it's all going to be really about service. Mm. Providing just the best service you can possibly provide in whatever capacity you can, and so you see a lot of these companies now, they are just resorting to free shipping, and they say for a limited time, and really that limited time is pretty much the entire holiday season, because consumers really care about free shipping. That is one of those levers they can pull mm-hmm. that will make a consumer make a decision right then and there. Um, so whether it's free shipping or easy returns, um, whatever else they can do, it's going to be service that can be the real differentiator and help take these retailers above and beyond. And it probably doesn't help that online shopping has just exploded over the last few years because you don't have that element of service. You know, you might walk into a Nordstrom and expect good service there, or Macy's, and a good service there, and you're willing to pay maybe a little bit more for that. You know, you don't need the sale when you've got a salesperson helping you out and making great choices for you and making sure you get what you want. Uh, so I suppose online shopping is really, you know, not helping uh, this trend of of sales because you don't have that service there, you don't have that overhead, so you really don't expect higher prices. You don't accept that as part of the deal. Uh, and to that point, you know, Carl Quintanilla was tweeting earlier today, uh, noting that uh, mall traffic has fallen 6.4% in November. It's tied with May for the worst decline this year, which. Is a little bit surprising. You think again at the top of this segment we talked about Black Friday. It was a very strong Black Friday for folks, but the strength wasn't in bricks and mortar. It was in online retail. It's online shopping. Sure. Where again, there isn't that element of service. There isn't that element of walking into a store and accepting a higher price because of that shopping experience. So that's not going to change anytime either. I assume as well. Everyone shops online these days. Like you said, the free shipping is a huge element of online shopping, and it's certainly adding to the the charm and the pros of online shopping. That's not going to reverse anytime soon. So, again, I just I don't see this trend changing. Like you said, smart marketing can help ameliorate this, but really, it, it, I see a lot of sales being a lot of retail's future, and that probably doesn't bode very well for investors. No, not at all. And I think you... you you made a good point there in that, given the choice, I would rather search for something on a company's website than have to go to the store right. and deal with the traffic, the madness, um, finding someone to help me. I mean, that's the beauty of the internet, and really what it's done for retail is it's helped scale retail to, to levels that really haven't been seen before, because you can get that immediate personalized service mm-hmm. whenever you go to their website, versus if you go to the store. It, you you may get stuck waiting there, and then you may get someone who doesn't really know what they're doing. It's been known to happen before. Um, see, I mean, the, the the internet has certainly changed the retail space in a phenomenal way. Definitely, winners and losers from it all. But I think at the end of the day, consumers certainly win, and there are 
absolutely ways for investors to win as well. Okay, uh, let's move on to one of our favorite companies here. I know yours and mine. It's Bojangles. Bojangles. Uh, and I bring up Bojangles because I understand you were down in uh, Georgia the other day. I was. Uh, you're playing a little round of golf. Uh, and did you pick up some Bojangles on the way back? Well, Mark, you know me, always one for some selfless market research. Sure. And yes, I uh, I flew into Atlanta, drove down to my mom and dad's house in Moultrie, Georgia, for a couple of days of uh, golf. And on the way back to the airport on Monday morning, hey, yeah, there's a Bojangles the right yeah. there on the interstate, yeah. man. I I can't not stop. <laughs> um, and and yeah, I mean, this is one. I, I grew up with Bojangles. Grew up uh, in, in South Carolina with Bojangles, and um, it, it fascinated me when the company went public because I thought, man, I just a lot of good memories there. Eating yeah. some great, you know, chicken biscuits and and whatnot. Um, this I think could probably be a good example of a business where I like the food. Probably not as fond about the stock right now. Maybe price could change that. I mean, it's not like it's a bad company. It's a good business. Um, stock is up almost twenty percent this year, so it's had a good two thousand and sixteen. That's true. Yeah. Uh, they they recently filed for a secondary offering. The interesting point there is that the company is not going to get any of that money. These mm. are just stockholders selling out, so that kind of sucks. Sure. Um, but they have around seven hundred restaurants. They see a total market opportunity domestically of about thirty five hundred stores. Now, I think that's optimistic, but I would say even if you cut that in half. Um, they're still going to be able to build some more stores, mm-hmm. and they franchise a little bit more than half of them. So they keep a relatively decent cost structure there, and they they are pretty profitable from that licensing structure. And it's interesting. I noted they're working on <laughs> they're working on this. Um, Please concept. tell me you're about to say the biscuit theater. Well, no, I, that's, <laughs> oh, okay. I haven't heard of that. Oh, we got to so talk about the biscuit theater. In a there, go on, go on. Maybe that's tied to the Bojangles of the Future project because this <laughs> is actually a thing. Uh-huh. Um, and I was very interested to see that the first Bojangles of the Future concept is going to be opened in Greenville, South Carolina, mm-hmm. where I actually once lived and I was a golf professional there for a couple of years. So to me, uh, yeah, I think all of these stores, Panera, I know, uh, has, has really worked hard on it. McDonald's is working hard on it as well. Bringing these stores into the 21st century, allowing more sort of kiosks and, and online ordering options. And so it looks like uh, the Jangler is trying to do that as well. Uh, they do something and do it very well. They, they do breakfast food, I think, in, in a pretty good way. And, and NPD uh, research would have you believe that the U.S. restaurant breakfast market uh, will hit around $35 billion in 2018. So, from a number of perspectives, there's some, something to to uh, say about this as a potential investment, uh, but but it's also an extremely competitive market. So I think yeah. uh, this is one that I will I will put uh, on the on the watch list. Maybe learn a little bit more about it and see if I can't recognize a price at least that would that would get my interest. Well, to your point, you know, 2016 has been good to Bojangles. It's up 20 percent. Although overall, since it went public in 2015, even with 2016. Uh, in the rearview mirror now, it's still down about 20% yep. from where it originally IPO'd. Uh, so maybe there's some value there, maybe not. Like you said, they're they're reaching for the stars. 3,500 restaurants across the country is the goal. Right now, I believe there are 700, uh, so there's still a ways to go there. But they are expanding. Uh, they're expanding further into the north uh, with uh, some uh, new restaurants popping up in Pennsylvania. And to your point, part of those new restaurants is a new design concept, including the Biscuit Theater, where customers can watch staff make biscuits every 20 minutes. Oh, wow. Like in a Krispy Kreme, you. when, you, okay. when the Krispy Kreme so rolls going... out the new. Yeah. So they want it to be a whole experience now, which, to be fair, I do love me those biscuits. I those... love biscuits too. Mm-hmm. I don't know that making them is all the most exciting process <laughs> in the world, though. I've made How a dare few you? in my lifetime. Um, 
is That's a biscuit theater. I don't know how I feel about that. Well, yet. here's the thing. So a new design concept, <laughs> I get it. You know, you want the new design concept. You want to bring the fast food chain into the 21st century. Yeah. That's been the story with every other fast food chain so far, though. McDonald's has been trying this. Burger King's been trying this. How does Bojangles separate itself from the crowd? Well, I think what Bojangles does is they focus on really, like I mentioned, doing one thing and doing it really well. I mean, breakfast is the big opportunity for a lot of these restaurants, but Bojangles, generally speaking, is known for its chicken. And and they do make very good chicken. I love the chicken biscuit. Uh, Jason likes his chicken spicy. <laughs> they do that stuff really well. They have, they have, I think, a fairly limited menu offering compared to some of these other concepts, and I think they really sort of harp on that breakfast offering, which is good as well. Um, but again, I mean, it, it, it is fast food at the end of the day, right? And uh, as, as good as Bojangles is, hey man, Chick Fil A is really good too. Mm. So you've got a lot of competition out there, not only in really their little niche offering, but 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 on a, on a grander scale uh, in quick serve restaurants, and and that's a notoriously diff- difficult market to you know in which to invest. So I mean, I, I think the thing that we need to keep an eye on with Bojangles is. Is is that thirty five hundred? Is that thirty five hundred store opportunity realistic? Is that way way optimistic? How many stores can they really open? Because that can give you a better idea of how much growth there is to be expected here. And if we're if if we're assuming that they could double their store count for today, which probably isn't all that unreasonable, then perhaps there is something here. But you definitely want to make sure you you identify a fair price with something like this, because the market will take these restaurants to the shed when they don't perform. You mentioned Chick-fil-A, garbage chicken. You mentioned Popeyes, (laughs) a pale imitation. Bojangles is the truth, my friend. All right, let's move on to our Twitter Q and A session. Uh, JMO, you love your Twitter, and we love hearing from our listeners. So it's the best of both worlds. You posted online asking for folks to send in their questions. We're going to answer them on air. Uh, and for other folks out there who want to ask some more questions in the future, uh, they can reach you at TMFJMO. TMFJMO, or just hit us up at Market Foolery. We're always happy to bring questions. Uh, into the fray here. Yeah. You even included a new hashtag this time. Hashtags dozens Q and A. Yeah, let's I see like if that we can hashtag. Get that bad boy trending. <laughs> I think that good. that one will be. Uh, we'll save that one for future Q and As. All right, so let's uh, launch on into this. Uh, we've got two questions back to back here. Uh, they're both sort of related, so we're just going to kind of double up here. We've got at CMG Chicago. What is Jack Dorsey's ultimate game plan? At some point, will he be forced to choose between Twitter and Square? Uh, another reader, or excuse me, listener asked at uh, dr973 asked, "Have you seen Quora? Twitter needs to merge with or buy them and build something larger than their current platform." So, uh, amongst our listeners, and probably amongst a lot of investors out there, there are some questions hanging around Twitter's future. Uh, some of them have to do with the business itself. Some of them have to do with the guy in charge, Jack Dorsey. Uh, what's your take on those two questions? There. Yeah, very fair questions, and um, you know, Twitter's one where I feel like. Man, we've just been really disappointed. I've I've certainly been disappointed with the way they've executed. That was a, a phenomenal platform, but I think a lot has been left on the table there. What's Jack Dorsey's ultimate plan? I don't know. I don't speak <laughs> with him personally. Um, I was really excited to see Dorsey and Bain teaming up together there, and unfortunately, Adam Bain has left as well. Um, so I I don't know if he's going to be forced to choose. I think as it stands right now, they're giving him. Uh, the slack he needs to kind of run both companies, and and it's it's certainly conceivable that 2017 could shape up to be a better year for Twitter because expectations have been so low, and it does seem like they're making some headway in their live offerings and whatnot. Um, 
in regard to Quora, I, I, I don't use Quora. I've seen it. I think it's kind of an interesting concept, and just from a sort of knowledge uh, collection. But I, I think actually there's an app out there that, to my mind, would make even better sense for Twitter, and that is Nuzzle. And I don't know if anybody out there Nuzzle. uses it. You're just yeah, making things you, up now. <laughs> this this thing is a uh, it's it's deserving of your first of your home screen on your phone. I promise. But it is a very good news aggregator that basically brings in all of your social network or networks that you use, um, and it does a really good job of bringing the highest priority news um, to to your timeline. At any given time, really. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a neat app that that really does a good job of sort of aggregating all of this news. It plays into sort of that notion that Twitter is very much the operating system of news. Um, I don't I don't know if they ever will buy it, but I I do think the team there has done a a really great job of building that out. And, and it's an app I, I check it probably every day. I hmm. think and um, so so yeah maybe Nuzzle. maybe we'll see maybe we'll see some deals here in 2017. But but yeah, there's no question he's on the hot seat. Nuzzle. Was Cuddle taken? Was was Smooches already filled in? Just download the app, Mark. All I right, promise. I'll give it a shot. Uh, next question. We've got at Carlson1978. Carlson with two S's there. Seems investors have completely lost faith in Under Armour. What positive signs should we look for before backing up the truck? Uh, for those out there who are unaware, Under Armour, great company. It has been for a long time. It's down 34% year to date. Uh, Jason, what's your take on that? Well, speak for yourself, Carlson. We haven't lost faith in Under Armour. Uh, no, that's a good point. Now, I, I think it's fair to note here that part of this was actually by choice of management when they uh, ratcheted back that operating income guidance. Now, part of that probably was also hasty forecasting when they initially set that bar a couple of years ago. Um, but, but ultimately, what happened? They had pegged. Uh, reaching $800 million in operating income by 2018, mm-hmm. and the stock was priced based on those expectations. They came back recently and said, listen, we're not going to hit that target, but we're not going to hit that target because we're going to plow more money back into the business and try to pick up this global market share. So, it was somewhat by choice, sure. um, and the market repriced the stock based on those expectations. Very understandable. Um, I think the one thing that we're going to pay close attention to is, they also set the benchmark for hitting seven and a half billion dollars in revenue by 2018. Mm-hmm. Now they're maintaining that guidance, and that's one thing we're going to pay very close attention to because if they don't hit that, then that could be a sign of of bigger problems. Um, and and so that's really the measuring stick we're holding them accountable to right now. We'll continue to watch inventory, um, ultimately how their operating margins are trending because we do feel like this is a business that yes, they're kind of going through a little bit of a tricky time right now. But it's a tremendous track record there, and obviously very devoted and driven leadership in Kevin Plank. So uh, the way I've always sort of framed it with with folks is that this is a company I own the stock today, and I plan to own it ten years from now, and and hopefully twenty years from now. I think this is a business that's going to be around for a very long time. Um, investors have won to this point with it, and I have no reason to believe that. That uh, that that we won't continue to win for uh, many years to come. Well, that's a nice segue to another question from at JPSCO zero one Under Armour or Nike, Visa or Mastercard or neither. Keep up the good work or stop while you're ahead. Merry Christmas. Hashtag dozens Q and A. Thank you for using using the hashtag there. Uh, let's let's say it's a zero sum world. You have to choose Under Armour or Nike. Both companies can't get your money here. We'll move on to Visa and Mastercard in a moment. Under Armour or Nike? Okay, so in a zero-sum game, I think I'm going with Under Armour simply because of the growth opportunity that's still there. 
nothing against Nike, because ideally, I'm going to tell you that your portfolio has room for all four of these names that you just mentioned. Mm. But if I have to choose, I'm going to choose Nike simply because, or I mean, Under Armour simply because it is the company that has the more attractive growth prospects, and I think they have uh, done a lot of good things to this point. Visa or Mastercard, or neither. Neither was an option. Well, I, I would, I would definitely, again, I think room for both. But I, I think you know, Visa is the 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 big dog out there in this space. It's the more established company, and there's a lot to like about Mastercard as well. But I think in this case, I'd probably go with Visa just because um, it it is the it is the bigger card base. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, at Kiko Morris, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing there. At Kiko Morris underscore, I see ETF expense ratio is getting cheap. Example: iShares is less than, or excuse me, 0.03 percent. At what percent does the expense ratio become no go? Uh, for example, 0.1 percent. Uh, any take on expense ratios there? Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to make sure I understand the question specifically. But if if I get it, it's that at what point do expense ratios get so cheap mm-hmm. that it's not worth looking at? This ETF, if if that's uh, the question, I think that with ETFs, I mean, just the, the way technology is working in our lives in virtually every capacity, it's bringing costs down more and more and more every day. It seems like, and and so I think that ultimately with an ETF, number one, make sure that the firm that runs the ETF, you you know what kind of firm actually is 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 backing that ETF, understand what the ETF is, how it's run, um, historical returns. What the general strategy is for the ETF, and from there, I don't think you're not going to see. I don't think costs get down to ultimately zero, but I think at this point they're going to be extremely low. And I think if last I checked, the average ETF carries an expense ratio of um, around 0.44 percent, which means for every thousand dollars you invest, you're going to pay around four dollars and forty cents annually. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it from that perspective, that is a very low fee already. Um, certainly, be aware if. There's a firm out there giving you an ETF and not charging any expense at all, um, but again, I think that uh, generally speaking, costs are going to remain low for the foreseeable future. All right, one final question. I like this question a lot. We've got at DJISDJ. Any recommended resources that TMF produced back in 0708? New to investing, love TMF, but curious. What was said then? That was a stressful time for investors. I'm sure we produced some interesting things back then. I was unaware. I was I was not a fool back in the day. I believe you might have been in 0708. Were you? I was. Still a, I was a member. You remember? I was, remember, I was gonna say, yeah. but I was a member. Um, a very good question and two answers there. Number one. Any of our premium services, our, our stock idea services, or portfolio services, we had a lot of content written on an ongoing basis there. Now that's only accessible for, for subscribers. Uh, but if you're looking for something just on the Fool.com website, if you go to Fool.com and in the search bar up there, just type in the words "Great Recession," mm. it's going to bring a slew of, of articles and content that 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 all sort of came around that time, shortly after that time. So some interesting perspectives there about what everybody was going through. How people dealt with it, lessons learned, whatnot, and that's a great question because yeah, look back at that time and learn um, from from those periods. I mean, I think one of the one of the best things that ever happened to me as an investor was actually being an investor through that period of time. I mean, it really, really teaches you to kind of not fall in the trap of just letting the the headlines 
guide your investing decisions every single day. I mean, there was there was a lot of opportunity ultimately that came of that time. Sure. All right, Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Mark Reith. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Trader!